Uh, we have with us this evening uh, Andrew Nichols, who uh, is uh, on the staff at Oak Hill College. And um, Andrew, would you like to just introduce yourself briefly and tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Hello. Um, it's lovely to be with you tonight. Um, I'm Andrew. Uh, been here at Oak Hill for three years. Before that, I was a pastor um, in southwest London for uh, 15 years. Uh, I'm before that. Um, I was a doctor for a period of time, but I've forgotten most of it. And um, so, if there are if there are um, observations from modern medicine that others want to make later on, I'll be an opportunity for that. Uh, I'm married to Hillary. We have two children. They are uh, 19 and 17. Um, the older one has just started an apprenticeship. The younger one is trying to make something out of school after a long period of lockdown and struggling. If I'm honest. Yeah, I think many here will be able to empathise with that. And um, so you you are um, Director of Pastoral Care and Training. Is that what you said? Is that a, a... Uh, Well, I, I didn't actually say I'm Director of Pastoral Care, yes, um, which yes. means that I, I um, help to teach pastoral care here to those who are studying for ministry. Um, people like Tom used to be, and um, I suppose Alistair at some point that was, at, was at Theological College at some stage. And um, and I uh, and I, I oversee the pastoral care of students and their families who are here, so teaching and sort of practice at the same time. Great. So, Alistair, would you lead us in prayer as we get going, and then we'll hand over to Andrew. Of course. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that um, uh, Andrew has spent many years uh, pondering this topic and caring for people who, with various degrees of depression. We realise that tonight that many of us are affected by this. Perhaps we are ourselves or friends or relatives we know. And we long to be better biblically informed and uh, full of Christ's love uh, for each other uh, so that we know how to care for one another in these sorts of situations. So we pray that you'd help us to listen well, learn well. And uh, we pray that Andrew would be a great benefit to us tonight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 <clears throat> well, thank you very, very much indeed. It's lovely to be uh, with you. Um, I'm, I've got a, a PowerPoint presentation, some slides to show, um, which I will, I will launch. Um, and uh, one of the lovely things about um, Zoom is that it lets you adjust the size so you can have a great deal less of me and a great deal more of the slide if you want to. There's, there's depending on the, the version of Zoom you've got anyway, it's, it's possible to, to change the relative size. There's a bar between the picture of me and the picture of the slide. So if you want to have a play with that um, and uh, make me very small in the top corner, that's absolutely fine. Um, this is a, uh, a tough thing to talk about. It's a tough thing to hear about. And of course, one of the reasons for that, as I'll be um, showing, is that Depression is very common, and depression, um, uh, severe depression, is is quite common. And so there will be lots of people um, in your life, um, whether you know it or not, or, or however well you know it, um, for whom this um, comes very close. Indeed, there'll be people here um, uh, for whom depression has been or is now um, a really difficult reality. It is a very tough period of life and um, I know that that is the case and I, I 
I want you to know that I know that because I'm conscious that it, it could be that um, in, in some of the things that I say, in some of the, the way questions are asked and answered, perhaps, um, that, that I, I, I tread on toes or I say something um, that doesn't really connect with you or that feels like I, I don't understand your experience. And, and in one sense, that will be right. I don't understand your experience. But um, I suppose I want to apologise up front if what I say um, comes across in a way that is too jarring or, or that feels unkind. It really isn't my intention. Um, what um, we're going to do, as I suggested, is we're going to consider the topic in two big headings and there'll be a break in the middle. Um, do do um, pop questions on pigeonhole um, as you want, or if you see a question that somebody else has put, you can vote for it. And, and um, I guess we'll... we'll choose the questions that are most popular if there's a if there's a need to choose if we don't quite have time for all of them. Um, but in my the two sessions we're going to look at, first of all, we're going to think about understanding depression. And that's that's a really important thing to try and do. Um, it's helpful uh, often, it's helpful for reasons that we'll see if you have depression, to hear someone describe what you experience. Um, but also if, if depression is something that we have no direct experience of ourselves, um, it really is important to try, as it were, and get ourselves inside the experience of depression because it will make all the difference in the world when we come on to part two, which is caring for people with depression. Um, I'm, I'm going to begin with this summary statement, which is um, really trying to capture all that I want tonight to say. And um, I mean, especially if, if depression is something you're struggling with right now. Um, it would be amazing if you were able to um, concentrate all the way through uh, the session. And um, this sentence, um, if, if this gets burned into our hearts, as it were, then um, that would be a really useful night, I think. Um, let me read the sentence and I'll explain, um, explain one or two bits in it. Depression is suffering, sometimes truly horrible, which God fully understands. And people who suffer in this way belong in the church where God intends them to be cared for. If you look in the Bible for the word depression, it's not really very easy to find. And that fact can mean that our, our kind of our, our, our gut feel is that the Bible doesn't really say very much about depression, that there's no real connection between that experience of of depression and the Bible, and that can make it feel like um, God doesn't get it, God doesn't understand. Uh, it can make it feel like church is not the place you go if you've got depression. Uh, you've got to go somewhere else to get the help that you most need. Um, and uh, th th those two things that, that um, I'm, I'm disconnected from God because of my depression, because he doesn't get it, and I'm disconnected from church because of my depression. Um, those two convictions, which um, someone who's experiencing depression will tend to feel anyway, um, those two convictions can make it so much worse. And by saying just those very simple words, depression is suffering, what we're establishing is that in fact, the experience of depression is covered all through the Bible. Because all of 
the Bible from Genesis 3 anyway, right to the end and the return of Jesus is very straightforward about the fact that uh, this world and our lives are full of suffering. And the experience of depression is a kind of suffering. And the experience of living in a world which is broken and where things are not the way we want them to be and not the way God originally designed them to be, that's the world with which the Bible connects richly and deeply. And, and indeed, God does fully understand it. And I hope by the end of part one uh, we can we can share this conviction that actually scripture does know what it's like to have depression and does connect with us and god does connect with us he does fully understand and and therefore and we'll focus more in part two um on on the practical implications of this but therefore people with depression belong among god's people absolutely in fact church is god's way of approaching the problems of this world that he reaches out in love to a broken world through the church and it's not just for some kinds of brokenness that he reaches out it's for any kind of brokenness and weakness and struggle um, church is at the center of god's plan to respond at the heart of it is a restoration of our relationship with god um, uh, following on from that is the restoration of our, our relationship with other people. And basic to that is, is love of one another, love of God, love of one another. And that is the bedrock on which people who experience oppression are cared for because they're loved and just as much as anybody else. And they belong in the church. So I'm beginning to scoot ahead a little bit. I hope that that's the kind of territory that we want to want to cover during our time together in our, in our two parts. So we're first um, thinking about uh, how to understand depression. And let me begin by asking the question, what is depression? And here are some, some features of depression. There are longer lists than this, but I want just to share four with you to give a, a flavor. Um, and the first one would be a low mood. Uh, it, uh, I, mood is that kind of word that, that captures some sort of index of how happy or sad I'm feeling. And to low mood, you say, I'm feeling, I'm feeling sad, I'm, I'm, I'm down. And a lack of enjoyment um, is uh, about saying, I, I, I don't really enjoy anything um, in life. I, I, I don't have that. I mean, one, one very good question to ask someone um, in order to get an index on how, how they are and how their depression is at the moment or whether they might have depression is to say, how long is it since you laughed? And someone with depression uh, we'll find that it's quite a long time, perhaps, since they really laughed. Uh, they might have learned to sort of laugh, a kind of covering laugh, um, but a real laugh uh, might be a long way in the past. This graph is quite helpful at, at explaining uh, what we mean by a low mood and a, and a lack of enjoyment. That's a picture of a normal mood. Um, and you'll see that over time, as you go along, um, our normal mood goes up and down. Um, so for someone with depression, it's not that if, if someone ever gets sad, that's depression. We all get sad, especially when bad things happen. And when a pandemic happens for a year, um, we're all going to feel a response to that. And so many of us are going to feel like we've been feeling down for a long time because of depression, but uh, because of the pandemic. Um, but um, 
there'll still be um, this, this kind of variation. There'll be, there'll be ups and downs in our mood, even if we're feeling it's a bit lower than it would normally be. Because um, uh, someone who, who doesn't have depression has this normal responsiveness to the, the highs and the lows, the, the good things and the bad things in life. Now, if you contrast that graph with someone who has depression, you can see that there are two really important things about it. One is that the whole line is down right near the bottom. Um, that's, that's the low mood. It's just uh, way down below what is normal. But the second important thing about it is that it's a much narrower range. That is a lack of that normal responsiveness to the ups and downs of life. And that's very often one of the very hardest features of depression. It's not just a kind of sadness. It's a kind of, it's a kind of deadness to what's going on around them, that they lack the capacity to find joy in Christian things, to find joy in their family, to find joy in anything. And um, that feature of it for many people who experience depression is the, is the very hardest thing to deal with. It's that nothing really gets through to them. They feel dead and we'll see some of that language uh, later on. Low mood and lack of enjoyment. And related to that, not surprisingly, is pessimistic thinking about the future. So um, it's normal for us to be able to, as it were, push our thoughts into the future and look forward to something and find something good that we could look forward to. And that's you know, a very strong feature of the Christian gospel, isn't it? But someone who experiences depression finds they can't find anything in the future that they can feel any better about, uh, that they can hope and look forward to with any genuine sense. And of course, um, that has very much been a feature of the pandemic. This is a, a, a picture of the results of this question, which was asked um, just at the beginning of 2021. Uh, at the moment, are you finding it easier, harder, or about the same to feel positive about the future? And no surprise that two thirds of people were finding it a little harder or much harder to feel positive about the future. Now, um, that can be a feature of mental illness. But um, in thinking about what constitutes a mental illness, we, 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 it's right to think about the background and other things going on. But it's right. And, and so um, we, we won't quickly put a label of a mental illness like depression um, on, on anyone who finds it hard to be optimistic in the middle of a pandemic. So um, lots of us are feeling that kind of pessimism at the moment because that's where we're living. That doesn't mean that lots lots more of us will have depression, though some more of us may. Um, but um, it does mean that um, uh, we might be understanding a little bit more what it's like to have depression if we're, if we're experiencing that difficulty in attaching hope to something in the future. And it seems at the moment, doesn't it, as if as soon as we get some something that we might hope for, it, it, it feels like it's being taken away again with summer holidays or whatever it might be. Um, but um, even without a pandemic, um, this feature of depression is that um, no one can see anything good to look forward to in, in the future when depression is, uh, is at its height. And then a very big feature of depression as well is reduced energy. And often that's because sleep is disturbed and people are able to sleep a great deal less. Um, but it just feels very hard to get things done. And part of the reason for that is because there's no reward in doing something. You don't feel good having done something. Um, lots of us may be quite hardworking. One of the dynamics that we'll be used to in life is that when we've achieved something, we feel good about it. And that keeps us going. It motivates us to go and do something else. Um, but 
when after you've done something, you don't feel good about it. You don't feel good ever about anything. Um, it's extremely dispiriting. And it, the, the grit just to get out of bed that someone um, requires if they're going to get out of bed when they're suffering depression is way greater than the kind of struggle some of us have to, to get out of bed on a bad day. It's, it's just a really huge weight and burden. It feels impossible. Now, um, those uh, features are, are really quite common across the population. So um, it's reckoned that um, throughout our lifetimes, um, uh, between 10 and 20% of us will have a period of depression. Doesn't mean it'll necessarily be, ever be diagnosed and labeled as that. Um, but uh, between one in 10 and one in five, uh, at some point during their life will experience a period of depression. So it's very, very common. Uh, it is twice as common in women as in men. Um, it is estimated that it will be the second cause of disability in the world by 2030, the World Health Organization, and it can see the upward trend and see it overtaking other things. And so worldwide, depression will, will be number two. Um, it, it's reckoned to be connected with, or the direct cause of, um, a third of all visits to general practitioners. Um, and, and, if, and if this is another important way to measure health, which it is if you're planning health and healthcare budgets, um, about £8 billion is lost in productivity annually in the UK because of depression, it's estimated. So it's a very common, it's a very huge issue. Um, and how wonderful, therefore, that a, a church is able to take time out to think about what is such a common feature of life in our world. It's a very common thing, as we've seen, and it's no surprise that many famous people have experienced depression, and I've put up some three categories there, but one could add to that list. Um, a huge number of people, and one of the things I think we're all aware of at the moment is that um, the stigma around having um, a mental health problem has been much reduced since members of the royal family have even been able to start talking about it. And um, uh, so we're more familiar with the idea that this is common. And um, it's striking that, that, that sports people get depression, even though they're exercising all the time. Exercise is often recommended as a, as a very uh, good way to combat um, depression or to try and... But it, it's not a cure-all because people who um, have taken a great deal of exercise can have depression at the same time. Um, some, of the, some of the world's great leaders have battled with depression, like Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln. Um, and Christian leaders, Charles Spurgeon, fantastic Baptist preacher, William Cooper, amazing hymn writer, um, have uh, ministered out of an experience of extremely difficult depression. We'll see one or two quotes from, from some of those in a minute. And um, it's well recognised that some of those people who are very best at making us laugh are doing so even at a time of very great um, uh, personal uh, depression. So. Uh, it's hard to tell from the outside who has depression. Um, so those are some basic features of depression, but I want to focus now on this really important feature of depression, which is that communication is very hard. And for someone who has depression, it's really hard. And communication is very, very important, isn't it? Because it's the basis of relationship, really. We, we depend on communicating um, in order to, 
to sustain and nurture our relationships and our relationships are so important to us our relationship with god and our relationship with other people that is the what life is about um at its heart but if relationships need communication and they do communication is very hard and so our relationships suffer communication needs feels like it needs a great deal of effort in order to do when you're depressed um but it feels like you have very little energy out of which to communicate um, and there's that kind of sense that um, if you do, in fact, manage to express what you're really feeling to somebody else, it'll be catching and depression is not catching. But to someone who is depressed, it can feel like it is because um, they can see as they describe what they're really feeling to somebody else, they can see their mood dropping. Um, so that that's an inhibitor to communicate. People don't want to pass it on to other people. And then if even if people want to try and answer questions and be honest about how they're feeling, it's very difficult to find words. It's very difficult to express that feeling of deadness. And in consequence, because of this difficulty in communicating, people who are experiencing depression very often feel acutely lonely and isolated. They know they're not expressing what's going on. They know people don't understand. And, and, and that barrier itself then just seems impossibly hard to cross. So here are some helps to try and, and help us over this communication barrier in depression. I've said that words are very difficult. And when I um, was doing a talk on this subject a little while ago, a friend of mine who'd suffered from depression shoved a book into my hands um, and um, said, this is brilliant at explaining what it feels like to have depression. Um, and it's the book, I Had a Black Dog by Matthew Johnstone. You might have come across it. Um, he was an illustrator, an artist, and he used his artistic gifts to capture the sense of having depression. And he did it with this metaphor, which actually um, Winston Churchill himself used. He used to talk about the black dog having come to stay when he was in a period of depression. And Matthew Johnston used that picture rather brilliantly to describe in these pictures what it's like. So here's a man trying to fly a kite on a beautiful day with green grass and a blue sky. And who wouldn't enjoy flying a kite on a beautiful day except that there is black dog sitting on the string and it just doesn't work. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to lack of enjoyment. Beautiful picture for explaining what it's like to have that lack of enjoyment. Here's another one. This black dog burrowing away inside this uh, man's head. Um, he's trying to read a book called How to Improve Your Memory by What's-His-Name. And the dog chewed up my memory and my ability to concentrate. Just couldn't follow a train of thought. And here again, um, he liked to wake me up with very repetitive, negative thinking. Problem sleeping, it's 3.20 in the morning on the clock, and there's this great weight on his chest, holding him down and holding him awake. Now, those are brilliant pictures to try and get inside the experience of having someone with depression. Here are some words from people who are good with words. J.B. Phillips, who translated the New Testament um, many years ago, uh, experienced depression, and he called it hellish torments. That's for a man who knows what hell is. And he likened the torment of depression to an experience of hell, a little bit like hell. It's a, a, a great, great suffering. Spurgeon, who I mentioned, the preacher, said, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Uh, and an uncaused sadness, just unable to stop. Here is 
um, someone writing about depression, depression involves a complete absence. Absence of affect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest. For all intents and purposes, the deeply depressed are just the walking, waking dead. Here's Abraham Lincoln. Again, I mentioned him earlier, one of the great world leaders. I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. <laughs> He's saying it feels so bad to have this depression just in this, in this one soul. It really would spoil it for everybody if I could share it with you. Powerful, powerful words. Um, and I want now to, to um, share some pictures that... Um, are written by a friend of mine, um, Mark Maynell, who's a Christian minister. He's written a book called When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. And this is one of the points he makes in that book about depression, his experience of depression as a Christian leader. Um, it, it makes the point that it's very difficult to explain. And so as he was looking back on a period of depression, he, he, he cho has chosen five word pictures to use to explain the experience of depression. And, and, and here they are, you might find them helpful. The first is a volcano. And his picture there is of the lava, the hot lava pouring out of a volcano, just destroying everything in front of it. So his picture of a volcano is saying that all of life is destroyed by depression. There's just nothing left. Or the picture of a cave, that kind of loneliness, that difficulty in communicating makes us very lonely. You feel cut off from people who don't understand how you feel. And that's almost everyone that you have this instinct that no one could really get it, no one could really understand how you feel to have depression. Or this picture of a weight, a weight which um, can feel, in Christian language, can feel very much like a guilt. The constant feeling that you must be doing something wrong. And the constant feeling, perhaps, that by being depressed, you are, in fact, doing wrong to other people. And the constant sense you get from other people that they are telling you that you're wrong. So it can feel like an immense weight, a great guilt. Then this feeling of an invisibility cloak, um, which was the picture that he used to try and describe the great sense of, of shame, a sense of himself as wretched, um, which can arise from a combination of, of feelings coming from, from who I feel myself to be and um, the feeling about things that others have done to me. But, um, really that sense of um, shame that kind of covers all of life. And then lastly, a picture of a closing, that sense of death, in great pain with no sense of purpose and the temptation, perhaps the, the feeling of embracing darkness. Those are five pictures that he chose to try and explain what it was like to have depression. And the big question that all of this asks us as Christians um, is, does God understand depression? Because if he doesn't, then one of the worst possible human experiences is made many times worse by the idea that God, in fact, is distant in times like this. Now, I did a seminar on this subject at the church I was working at a few years ago, and, and 
I don't, you don't need to be able to read that. My handwriting is terrible. But I just want to put it up there just to show you on the left hand side in the sort of purpley ink, that was um, the things people in the room were willing to share about what was hard about having depression. And you can see some of the things in other words, but some of the things that we've just been talking about are written up there on the left hand side. On the right hand side was their answer to the question, what's hard having depression as a Christian? And there's a whole new list of things which have filled that side as quickly as the other side did. In other words, there's a sense in which being a Christian um, adds a whole, a whole another list of things that are hard to have depression as a Christian. And on that list, there are things like, um, you know, that sense of guilt, perhaps before God, that this must be my fault. And the, the sense that depression often brings with it, the sense of, of, of a complete lack of assurance. I do not know if I'm a Christian. I was talking to a friend of mine a few, a few weeks ago who just said, um, I, just, I just have no idea if he's there. I certainly have no idea if he's answering any prayers. I'm struggling to pray, but I don't know if there's any point. Um, and the kind of guilt uh, um, that he was feeling at not being able to feel what everybody else could feel and what he was supposed to feel as a Christian. Um, for people who experience, well, think about um, suicide and temptations to suicide in a moment, which is a, a, a marker of very severe depression. But if people were aware that their thoughts had turned in that direction, that felt acutely sinful and put them in a, in a particular category for condemnation among their brothers and sisters in the church. The idea that church is for sorted people. We so easily give that impression to each other in church. Um, maybe you're familiar with the phenomenon of a car park conversion. I don't know if you have car parks at your church, but you probably don't, being where we are in London. But, um, you know, that, that life has been messy and you leave the front door and you go to church. And, but then that mess all gets somehow left behind and, you, and you're smiling and happy or you, you seem to be. Um, but there are some people who can't pull off that trick. Um, and so they feel like they really don't belong here because church is full of happy people, sorted people. Um, and sometimes our preaching makes it worse. Um, you know, it's possible to say things like, um, if you're not feeling any joy, then maybe you're not a Christian. I've, I've heard something like that said in a sermon. And of course, there were a number of people sitting in front of them who were unable to feel joy at anything at that moment because they had depression. And that and added in the extra question to them, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. So there are really big issues here around that question. Does God understand depression? Because it would seem like his people don't always understand depression. And Mark Maynell, who wrote that book, When Darkness is My Closest Friend, um, wrote this. At the darkest moment, the sole reason why I felt I could still do business with God in my bewilderment was what he allowed to be included in the Bible. God's inspired word includes passages like this from Psalm 42. My tears have been my food day and night. Unrelenting, low mood. Or from Psalm 88. If you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to Psalm 88. Um, perhaps you've got a Bible not too far away. I should have given you fair warning I was going to turn to the Bible. I hope it's not a great surprise. Um, I'd love us to look at this. I put some verses from Psalm 88 there, but I'd love you to turn up the Psalm if you have got it in reach, because I really do want us to see in the Bible that we use <laughs> that God gets it, God understands it. Psalm 88 is an extraordinary psalm. Here's, here's one quote from it that I put on the slide. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. 
they have completely engulfed me. You have taken me, taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Now, if you look at the psalm as a, as a whole, I'm not going to go through it in any great detail, but there are some extraordinary things in this psalm. Um, there is a staggering depth of suffering in verses three to five. It was in that bit that I read as well. But I'm overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. See that those kinds of words like I feel dead, the walking, waking dead. That is what's being described here in Psalm 88. The person that wrote Psalm 88 was expressing how he was feeling. And it's very similar to the words that some people use of depression. There's that staggering depth, but there's also a, a shocking source. Because in verses six to eight, and indeed in the book that I read at the end, you, God, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. In other words, in the end, God, I believe that you are sovereign in this world. I, I, I believe that you run it. And so all this stuff I'm living under is, is under your control. It's your doing. This is, this is from you. Now, that putting it in that kind of way raises all kinds of questions that we don't have time to explore in great depth. And it's wonderful that, that, that you're in churches that will be doing that kind of thing and understanding a, a nuanced and careful view about a Christian's response to suffering. But, but the Bible is very clear that suffering is not what happens when God is powerless. And there is at least this germ of hope, very clear truth that um, God remains in control of these things and therefore he is the person to talk to about them. Psalm 88 is not ready to tell us yet that that makes everything feel better. It raises all kinds of deep questions, but it does encourage us to go and talk to the one who is in charge. It is still worth pouring out your heart to him. But this experience causes a very desperate loneliness. And um, uh, that, that's how the psalm finishes. The very last verse of the psalm, you have taken from me, my friend and neighbour. Darkness is my closest friend. I have no other friends except darkness. Desperately lonely and therefore completely without hope. There is a Psalm 89. There are lots of other things in scripture, but do you see that in the world of the person writing Psalm 88, there is no hope. There is no positive ending. And what I want us to see from that, and this applies whether it's depression is our experience or the experience of others in the church, can you see that God fully understands what it's like? It is not a great surprise to him because he caused these words to be here in his word. He oversaw the process of the person that wrote them and the process by which they came to be here for us to read. It's not that we have to miss out Psalm 88 because it doesn't have any positive. No, God put it there because that is what life is like sometimes for people who believe in him, for people who belong to him. See, Psalm 88 is telling us because this psalm belongs in God's Bible, this person belongs in God's people. And 
what this begins to open up is that there are indeed ways to connect scripture with the experience of depression. Absolutely, there are lots of ways in which scripture connects with those who experience depression. Now, that doesn't mean that people find it very easy to make that connection all the time. It doesn't mean that um, uh, you can respond to depression just by um, finding a few magic verses and turning to them and it makes it go away. And that's a complete misunderstanding of what depression, what it's like to have depression. And one of the great hard things about it is it doesn't just go away when you do the right things. Um, but here are some ways suggested by the material we've just looked at that begin to make connections, implications of the fact that God's word really does demonstrate an understanding of what it's like to have depression. And if you're someone who is struggling with that at the moment, then it may be that one of these threads will connect with you in your situation right now. And if it does begin to connect with you, um, then uh, it, it might be a hopeful thing for you to hear. If none of them begin to connect with you, then um, that is one of the great difficulties of depression, that there isn't that feeling of connection. But um, let, me, let me try out these, um, these ideas of, of connection that are there in Scripture. And the first is really just to repeat what we've seen in Psalm 42 and Psalm 48. God fully understands. However convinced you feel that he can't understand, uh, he does. And some of the words which will describe what you're feeling most accurately are words that God himself wrote. God fully understands. Secondly, you also belong in Jesus's church. Your experience does not exclude you from among the ranks of those who believe. You belong here with those who are not having this experience at this moment in their lives. You belong just as much as every one of them. And you still belong in all those promises that he's made. You, you, you're not suddenly on the outside of them because this is what you're experiencing now. You belong in the church and in the promises that God makes to all his people. You still belong. Thirdly, um, we are held by God by his grace, his, his gentle grace. We are not held by our joy. So the fact that we can't feel anything in response to his love and in response to his goodness does not mean that he is not holding us. It feels like he isn't. It feels like we're falling with no bottom. But he is holding us. And the fact we can't feel it does not for one moment change the reality that he is. Maybe to put it this way, would be helpful that the authentic life of faith can include great sorrow. It's not that the authentic life of faith, the very best of Christians, lives without periods of extended sorrow, sadness and depression in their life. Not at all. The life of faith can include great sorrows, which is why the Psalms we've seen and others we'll see later make that point so plainly. And lastly, this may help. If none of the other things connect, it may just be this, that that experience of not knowing what to say, not knowing how to describe it. You can find words in scripture. Scripture can give you words to talk about what it feels like to have depression. And that sense is not just that God understands, but God actually 
begins to equip me to explain to other people what it feels like. And if, if all that one did was to say, yeah, Psalm 88, that's how I'm feeling right now, um, then uh, God has enabled that kind of communication, which is so valuable. As I say, it may well be that none of those connect with you right now if you're in one of these periods of depression. Um, and the fact that they don't um, will, will be a very great cause of pain and distress to you, perhaps. Um, uh, we'll think in part two. Um, but maybe the fact that you can see around you other people who still believe all of those things for you uh, can be a help that they, they haven't given up on those things because you can't feel them to be true. They still know that they are. And uh, they hopefully are communicating to you their conviction that you belong in just the same place as them in God's people. Now, as we come to the last um, section in uh, part one, I do want us to think about the question of suicide. And it must be one of the hardest topics to raise in a forum like this. And it would be very uh, easy, therefore, never to raise it. But if we can't raise it now at this point, then when would we ever? And if it was unraised, it would be a very great sadness and a very great wrong, because again, it would communicate that this area of life, one of the greatest tragedies in the end, God has nothing to say about. And although the gospel is very good, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not good news for absolutely everybody. I want to say the gospel is good news for absolutely everybody and every situation. And so it's really important that we're able in the right setting to think about the very toughest questions of life and suicide and whether we know people who have succeeded in an attempt to, to end their own life and they're not now with us, um, or whether it's a temptation that we've wrestled with ourselves, it's really important we can ask these questions of God and come to his word about it. Um, suicide has come very close in our family. I don't mean that one of my family has committed suicide, but uh, one of my family's very best friends did not many years ago. And we're conscious that uh, life was never the same again um, when something of that uh, um, power happens. Um, there is a great deal that one could say about this uh, topic. Um, let, me, let me make two points from the words of Jesus. Um, here is the first, that Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he um, faced the cross, what was to come in the next few hours of his life will be the last on earth. And he expressed the, the agony that it was to think about the crucifixion in this way to his uh, friends, his closest friends who he'd chosen to be with him in that moment of greatest suffering in the garden. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So that moment that, that someone who is um, experiencing suicidal thoughts um, has of, um, I, I feel like I've reached an end and I feel like the only alternative is, is death. Um, astonishingly, Jesus Christ knows what it's like to feel sorrow that, that deep. Jesus isn't quite saying that he, he was on the point of taking his own life, but he's saying he knows what it feels like for death to feel better. The agony which he experienced there was something that made um, death a more appealing option. He didn't um, 
waver from his commitment to follow through to the cross. Uh, he, um, he held on, but on the way, he walks so closely with others for whom those words would describe their own experience. And here's another um, very precious thing from the words of Jesus. All those the Father gives me will come to me, he said in John chapter 6. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven to do the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. And I put this slide on because um, it is sometimes believed that um, in, um, in Christian circles that the act of taking one's own life is a sin which is unforgivable. And th the logic is sometimes uh, understood that the reason why it's unforgivable is because you don't get the chance to repent afterwards. The, 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 the sin of suicide um, removes the possibility for repentance. But what that would mean was that Jesus was lying in John chapter 6. Because he's said that our, our guarantee of being in heaven is about belonging to him. It's not about whether we've completed the process of um, repentance from all our sins perfectly. It's about what he did for us on the cross. And that's why Jesus can guarantee that he will lose none of all his people, but raise them up at the last day. Suicide is a desperately serious wrong act. It, it, is, um, it is a sinful thing. It is a turning away from God. And we know, all of us in our own lives, what it's like to do seriously wrong things, turning away from God. But suicide, I'm convinced in Scripture, is not uh, the unforgivable sin. It's not the one thing that will keep us out of heaven. Um, when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he was explaining that um, all the sin of all his people had been fully and finally paid for. And there was none that they would do that in the end would result in them falling. And what that means is that um, if someone is experiencing uh, these things with depression, we don't need to recoil in horror. If someone um, uh, is, is getting lower and lower and if their um, uh, instincts and their, their responses are... Um, are producing more and more concern in us and perhaps they let on to us or perhaps we wonder if we should ask um, how you know whether they've even thought about it um, uh, we should move towards them because again we have a God who understands them and and, um, and wants us to be the means by which they understand that too that as we move towards them it's because God is not freaked out by what he's hearing them God is not um, frustrated by what they're now thinking he has compassion he understands he cares for them so we can move towards people and it's not that we suddenly have heard five minutes on the subject in a seminar on depression at church and now we're experts of course we'll need to involve other people in the kinds of care and intervention that, that such people need um, to surround them and care for them in these very very hard times of their life but it's as a church we don't need to stand back in horror we can move towards people in this moment of their lives and um we can um uh help them um, by holding their hand. We can help them by asking questions which will not increase the risk that they will commit suicide. We, we can ask them how bad they're getting. We can ask them um, if it crosses our minds to do so. We can say, um, how desperate are you feeling? Uh, have you wondered if, you, if you're reaching the end? Uh, have you thought about, if you've you begun to think about 
whether you're you're trying to find a way out. Um, uh, and we can stay close to them in that moment, doesn't matter what they say, and we can get help for them. And uh, it may very well be that uh, um, someone in our church uh, will be in a position um, where we can be the means by which someone at the very end of their life gets help um, at just the moment when they needed it, because we weren't horrified and we weren't we didn't we didn't um, pull away. Um, understanding God's feeling towards such people, we went towards them and tried to do what we could. There's much more that one could say about that topic, but um, let me draw part one to a close um, with uh, returning to that sentence that we started with, depression is suffering. It is sometimes truly horrible, but it is suffering which God fully understands and people who suffer in this way belong in the church in the body of his people. It is their gospel, their good news. And in part two, we'll think more about how God intends such people to be cared for by his church. Right. Welcome back, everybody. And um, hopefully you're still there. Lots of bigger screens off, but that's okay. Uh, but if you, uh, I hope that uh, people are still with us and uh, Andrew, um, do, so do we want to just take a couple of questions at this point? Yeah, I think I think so. I, mean, I think I can see the list here. So shall I shall I just do a few and then and then crack on with part two? One or two of them, I'll say I'm going to I'm going to begin to at least to answer that in part two. So I might leave the question until after that. Sounds um, good. And in fact, the the first question that I'm looking at here: What are your views on the relative merits of medical treatment, secular counselling, biblical counselling? Um, I will be addressing at least in part in part two. So I think I might leave that one. Um, then a question about young people. Yes, absolutely. It is incredibly important for young people. They're in a world where issues of mental health are, are being um, explained to them and helpfully, constructively explained from all sides. And it's really important that they too get the idea that church is a place where they can get help with their mental, with their mental health things. And it's not that church suddenly has to become full of mental health professionals. We, we very much need them outside the church, but church needs to become a place where people are willing to move towards and put their arms around and care for and understand the experience of those who are going through mental health uh, difficulties, uh, because God does understand. And, um, uh, you know, we're looking at depression tonight. Anxiety is a massive feature of uh, our young people's lives. And does the Bible understand anxiety? Yes, it uses the word anxiety a few times. It uses the word fear 360 times. Uh, it knows about those experiences and the good news is the thing we most need to hear and know about it whatever the course of our mental illness with is that God still connects with us in it is is the thing a Christian most needs to know and they won't hear that from people um, in the NHS typically and um, they'll hear some very helpful and useful things but they won't know that God understands and God loves them and God reaches out with them and God walks alongside them in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if church is not able to articulate some of these things, then our young people will end up feeling that church is for people when they're happy and you need the NHS for when you're broken. And that is absolutely not uh, the ministry for which the Bible equips us. Um, does God use depression as a test of faith? Ever since I became a Christian, my life becomes much harder for no other reason I can think of. That is a very, very important question. And um, uh, you're right that one of the things the New Testament explains God is able to turn suffering to is for our refining and our making of us more like the Lord Jesus. 
I don't have a great length of time to explore that. It's a topic I, 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 I'm sure you will find um, serious and careful answers to in the life of your church. Um, um, the, the danger of using this language, and it's a danger which is addressed in the places in scripture where it's used, is that we can use the word test and imagine that God is the kind of God who likes playing with people to see what they'll do. And we can, we can end up using it thinking that we're a bit like rats in a maze and God is experimenting on us. And that is so contrary to the God of love. Um, he, the, 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 the way in which he allows these things to, to test us is, is not, in, not for some sort of obscure interest of his to try and find out the answer. Um, it, it is the kind of um, uh, testing that grows us and gives us something of unimaginable value because he loves us. Um, uh, we all understand the concept of, of um, something being worth what it took to get there. Only God understands that concept perfectly. Um, and he is able to, to value properly what comes for us the other side of the trials and the other side of the tests and the other side of the suffering and he has prepared and is leading us towards something which he knows is we will agree is worth it forever um, and so yes he is able to turn all of satan's devices and all the evil and all the suffering in the world towards achieving his ends in us and we will know that it's worth it but we just need to be careful that satan doesn't use that kind of idea to 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 persuade us that God is that kind of, is playing with us, toying with us, because he never does that because he loves us so perfectly. Um, let me just do one more from here and then we must press on with part two. When does feeling down become depression and when does depression become nervous breakdown? Um, as far as I know, nervous breakdown is not a kind of a technical definition and people would use it to mean all kinds of different things. Um, so it's not like there is um, um, a kind of a, a scale and right at the end of it is nervous breakdown. Um, people's functioning sort of deteriorates gradually as mental health issues get worse um, and the people at which point you know some people might call it nervous breakdown would vary um, uh, in one sense um, it's a little bit arbitrary where you draw the line between um, feeling down and depression um, but actually medicine has worked quite hard psychology has worked quite hard mental health teams have worked quite hard by doing lots of studies on people um, of all kinds, uh, 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 establishing criteria that means that something can be labeled as depression and, and um, which it's appropriate to try and treat, something that's unlikely to get better on its own and that it may be beneficial to intervene with, something that's been going on so long it's beginning to damage things of their life and, and now help should be brought to them. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a clinical um, definition um, which you need to be clinically trained to operate um, and I think it's better for us not to try and become sort of amateurs in the church and, and to be those that are applying labels, but to become experts in caring for people, whatever their label. Um, so I'm using in this seminar, I'm using depression and quite loosely to mean the kinds of things that I'm describing. That's using it in a slightly different sense from what a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mental health nurse might use if they were going to attach a label of depression and then prescribe something or suggest some kind of formal counselling. And it's perfectly okay to use it and it's actually quite important that we do use it as long as we don't think that in using it we're now somehow magically becoming mental health experts we're not um 
but if someone says, I've got depression, they are telling you they are suffering. And at that point, um, the kind of stuff we're looking at tonight, you, you don't maybe need to know a great deal uh, more than that. I hope that's a helpful beginning. It's a complicated issue, but I hope it's helpful to begin looking at it that way. Now, let me um, share my screen again, and we'll get into part two. Um, so in part two, um, uh, in order to work out how to care for people with depression, um, it's important, first of all, that we don't try and resort to um, one of the simplistic explanations that we are sometimes drawn to. It's difficult for us to respond to suffering. We want to make it a simple problem and we quite like it to go away because uh, um, it, would, it, would, it would make it a lot easier for us. And so we, we try and um, push um, a button labelled quick fix um, and it doesn't work. We want, to, we want to try and avoid those things because then they can do more harm than good. And, and then we'll think a bit more about what um, positively church can do in fulfilling its vital role in caring for people in this kind of way. So um, first then, avoiding simplistic explanations. That is, it's very easy to say, and it depends partly on your training, your background, and the way in which you've come across the topic in the past. Um, but on one view, depression is, is purely a biological malfunction. And that could be summarized with the statement, it's just unbalanced brain chemicals. And the cure then is if only you take these drugs to rebalance your brain chemicals. Um, on the other side of the simplistic explanations is um, it's just spiritual failings. Um, it's just something wrong in you on the spiritual side. So one is saying it's just your body and the other saying it's just your soul. Um, if only you'd repent and believe, all would be well. Um, scripture does describe us as body and soul, but it never allows us to separate the two in the way that those simplistic... If there is something wrong with my brain chemicals, it's going to affect me spiritually. If there's something wrong with me spiritually, you'd probably be able to see it in my brain chemicals if you do a scan to pick them up, which we currently can't generally, um, because these bits of us are inseparable. Let me try and explain what I mean. Here are some bits of, of the human experience that will be familiar to all of us, I think. Um, um, mind, heart, and will. Thoughts in the mind, emotions in the heart, decisions as the will. That's a classic way of, of describing uh, the complexity of humanity. Um, it's not a completely biblical view um, because um, the Bible says there is something underneath all of those things. Um, which is that we are in the deepest centre of our being. We are, we are worshipping beings out of which our thoughts and our feelings and our decisions come. So um, it's not just that we are kind of um, biological sex with potential who are given a soul. At, um, it is that in our very essence, we are created as worshipping beings and everything else about us um, follows on from that. Um, that worshipping heart that is um, uh, always making something the biggest thing in our lives. Uh, it's always expressing commitments to something. It's always expressing love to something or someone. We, we can't not do that as human beings. Um, in uh, th that heart exists um, in a body. Um, we 
we're all embodied souls. We're all ensouled bodies. And that means that um, all the data that my worshipping heart receives about what's real is coming through a body that needs to be working if that data is going to come through. I need to be able to hear someone explain God's word to me. I may need to be able to see his words on the page. I need to be able to feel someone's arms around me expressing their love and so on. The, the, the data um, comes at me only through my body. Um, but it's not only that my heart exists in a body, but that is embedded in a world a big world outside. Um, all of us are um, uh, surrounded by uh, the world in which we live. Um, and what I'm trying to say is that in order to understand a human being, um, we always need to have all three in mind because all three are always in play. And um, we won't, uh, it is therefore impossible to explain anything by focusing on just one. And either saying, oh, it's just the spirit, the soul, and it's just my body malfunctioning, or it's just somebody else's fault outside. It's just the world. All three are always in play. Let me give you an, an example from a different area of mental health. It's one in which it might be um, slightly clearer to see how these three are in play all the time. Uh, let's think about the mental illness, which is anorexia nervosa. So someone who um, has an eating disorder in which um, they're absolutely convinced that they're overweight, that they're determined to, um, to change their body shape, um, into something which is um, uh, very much thinner than they are now and, and very unhealthy. And indeed, in the end, for someone with a serious anorexia nervosa, incompatible with life. Now, what are the, how, do we, how do we understand anorexia? Um, absolutely, it is um, affected by our culture. So um, people with anorexia are much more common in cultures um, that focus on um, women being thinner as beautiful. Um, so there's no question that um, the culture in which we live is a big influence and makes it easier to develop anorexia nervosa. Um, it's also affected by the very low body weight, because as my body weight reduces, um, I mean, that, that is a change in my body. And as it gets um, uh, lower and lower, other bits of my body stop functioning because there isn't enough energy going in for them to work. Um, and so um, what, it, what does it mean to have anorexia? It, it's... I'm living in a world where these things are, are given a particular importance. I'm in a body that, that of which I have a particular view of it, and that view is changing the body's function. Um, but there is someone making choices in the middle, making choices about whether and when to eat. And all three are in play all the time. And it's the same in any area of life. It's the same in normal life. It's not true just in mental illness. It's the same for all of us all the time. And it's certainly true for someone um, with a depression. Someone who has depression um, is to be considered as a world and body and heart. And um, the body is um, medicine's speciality. Um, so um, medicine has done a huge amount of um, thinking and study and research about responding to depression and helping depression. And, and so let me um, ask another question of us um, and, and try and say something about the kind of medication with which medicine uh, responds. Um, because antidepressants are extremely common and almost certainly there are many people on this call um, who are on antidepressants and we may or may not know that, um, but it's just very common as you'll see. Um, uh, there were a million people on long-term antidepressants in the year 2018. 
Uh, there were 7 million people in, in the year that spanned from 17 to 18 um, who took depressants at some antidepressants at some point during that year. This wasn't during a pandemic, this was before the pandemic. Um, but in the first months of the pandemic, um, 6 million people um, were on depressants in the three months up to September uh, 2020. 6 million people were on antidepressants. So um, use has gone up um, in the pandemic. It's been more common in those um, in those times, not, not surprisingly. In the West, we're approaching an average of one prescription per person per year uh, of antidepressant uh, medication. Um, and obviously that's expensive, but um, uh, how do we think about um, the, 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 the taking of antidepressants in this kind of model of, of the human being? Because um, uh, it's, unquestionable that um, antidepressants are reported by many people to be extremely helpful. Um, someone who uh, got in touch with me knowing that I was going to do this uh, seminar for the first time um, just wanted me to know that and they had resisted taking antidepressants for many years um, and almost as soon as their GP put them on, them on them they started to feel better and they wished they started a long time ago. That for them antidepressants were the real difference between um, persevering with a, with a difficult mental illness and actually feeling relatively normal. And that's not a rare phenomenon that the research that's gone into producing these drugs has produced things which can be very helpful. How are we to, how are we to think about that? Um, uh, our bodies get broken. They stop working properly. Um, they, they become influenced by things that happen to us and they no longer work properly. Our, our legs get broken when we ski downhill, um, if we do that kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, we get we get tired at the end of a long day and our bodies respond to what's happened and if we've had a difficult a very difficult period in our lives um the emotional uh, the bit of our brains that process emotions may stop working properly um may need a bit of help to um to help it back and here are a couple of useful pictures i think for understanding how that works in this picture of a, a worshiping heart um embodied and embedded in a culture and the first one is the is is that antidepressants can calm the sea if we're really going to um, uh, uh, relate well to each other and, and help people explore what's going on in our hearts, it's very hard to do in someone with depression because um, uh, the depression kind of gets in the way. It, it, it stops us getting very far. Conversations can't last very long. Questions seem very challenging and difficult. Um, sentences can't be very long. Um, it, it's, it's, and and the, the energy needed to engage with conversation could be so hard to come by. And um, taking antidepressants can be a bit like calming a sea. Imagine that you are needing to go diving to do some serious work um, below the waterline. You can't do that in a storm. So when the storm calms, if we could calm the sea down, then you can get under the surface to do the work that really needs to be done. And antidepressants can function in that kind of way. They can, they can put you in a position where the kinds of things that your soul needs to address can be um, very plainly helped. It may simply be that Taking antidepressants allows you properly to hear that God loves you and you feel you can um, respond to that um, as a more normal person would respond because you begin that, that bit of you that says that's great is beginning to function again with the help of that kind of medication. So it can be like that calming of seas. Another good picture for it is the provision of a walking aid, uh, crutches. Um, here's some things about crutches. Um, sometimes when we injure our leg, uh, we need a crutch. Um, if we've broken it, um, then uh, a crutch is extremely helpful or two crutches. Uh, we don't always, I mean, not all kinds of leg injury need crutches. 
um, but some do. Um, sometimes when we have crutches, um, they get in the way. It's hard to get in and out of a car when you've got a crutch. Um, and in many ways, we'd, you know, we'd rather we don't, didn't need it, but we do need it. Um, and it can be a pain having to use crutches. And sometimes if we're put on crutches, um, we go on using the crutch for too long. Um, we've become a bit dependent on it. Um, there are all kinds of reasons why that might happen. Um, uh, and if we have gone on a little bit too long, then maybe throwing the crutch away is a little bit harder than it ought to be. Um, when we do need to throw it away, um, it may well hurt us for a little bit to make that adjustment back to walking without crutches. But it's worth going through that because in the end, it's good for us to be able to walk without crutches. Sometimes the injury to the leg is so bad, it's not going to recover. We're going to need crutches for life. Um, but it, we still think it would be better if it's possible to manage without crutches. Um, and it's a, it's a good analogy for thinking about other kinds of help, including um, psychoactive medication like, like antidepressants. Um, sometimes when our body gets injured, we need help from antidepressant medication. Sometimes we don't. Just because we're, we're not functioning properly it doesn't mean antidepressants are always what we need, but um, sometimes they may be very helpful. Um, sometimes the, the taking medication will get in the way. It will cause other problems in our life. All medication has side effects. Um, we take medication because the benefit outweighs the side effects, but antidepressant medication does very often have side effects. They're common, um, GPs recognize it. And some, sometimes the side effects of taking the medication um, are too much of a nuisance for it to be worthwhile. Uh, sometimes, um, uh, not all the time, but sometimes um, we can get um, attached to taking antidepressants and it would be helpful to experiment with medical supervision about um, coming off antidepressants. That's not something just to decide to do, something to discuss with a GP, um, whether, whether now might be a time to see how we're getting on without them and that we might reduce the dose a little bit. Um, doing so might, might be destabilizing, might be a little bit hard, um, but it might be worth trying because in the end, um, it'll be better um, to get by without the medication, without the side effects that they cause. But sometimes the injury is so bad, we need to go on taking them for a very long time and perhaps for the rest of our lives. And that's okay. We're very thankful for the things that can help us function more normally. Um, when there's things of that kind that aren't working very well. Um, but even if we do take them for the rest of our life, we still know we'd rather not, um, because that's the best way to walk is, is, is without them. And I think that's a very helpful picture for understanding antidepressants. It's, it's another kind of help that just as we might thank God for a pair of crutches, we can thank God for the antidepressants. Um, um, but can you see that um, they, they don't take over the reality that, that we, are, um, we are at our heart, a worshipping heart, and then if antidepressants can help put our heart in a better place to explore again our relationship with God and our relationship with other people, to explore again the, our commitments and our choices, um, to, to, uh, to feel again those emotions that um, are so, such an important part of being human, then we can take them, I think, with, with, great, with great thanks. As I said, there are lots of side effects of taking such medication, um, and there are some of them. And you can imagine, can't you, that... Um, uh, any of those, I mean, some of them would, are in fact um, uh, making worse some of the problems that you have in depression, and some of them are, are very unwelcome extra things. So it's not something to take lightly, and that's why it's very good to have people who are well-trained and experienced in choosing and uh, choosing a kind of antidepressant and choosing a dose that's going to work for us, um, if indeed any of them will. 
there are other ways in which medicine helps. And it's not just that we go to a doctor to get tablets. Um, mental health professionals um, operate within something called the Mental Health Act. And some people with depression, um, uh, their depression is uh, so um, severe that they actually do need to be detained in a locked ward and watched um, because until their depression is treated to some extent, um, they're at very great risk perhaps of taking their own life. And the Mental Health Act gives health professionals the possibility of giving that kind of help if it's necessary. Um, maybe people don't need to be locked up, but they can be treated in hospital where medication, um, stronger medication can be experimented with safely and doses can be changed more quickly than in the gaps between outpatient appointments and inpatient treatment can be very valuable, essential for some mental health conditions. And we can be so thankful that we have access to that, um, uh, where indeed we do. And mental health professionals also have access to talking therapies. They can be incredibly useful. Um, uh, uh, they can um, provide opportunities to be understood and connect um, in, in really significant uh, ways. Um, but um, I can't remember now why I put two big holes on the slide. The one big hole, the, the, the big issue that um, you, can, you, can, you can't find in the kind of talking therapy that a GP will arrange for you, and they may be very, very valuable, um, you can't find someone who will speak to you as someone who at your heart um, is a, is a worshipper of the Lord. Um, you, you, you won't find someone who's trained in how to help us cling to the Lord when all of life is falling apart. No one will say in a secular therapy, um, God is our strength and refuge and ever present help in trouble. You need someone to turn up Psalm 46 for that. And just to try and say it like that might sound incredibly trite and unhelpful. I'm not trying to suggest that um, there is the church's cure for depression. But what I'm saying is that um, that very great truth that God is ever present with us when we're in trouble um, is something we, we need to hear and we need to experience from, um, from Christians. And um, if we hand people over to the NHS and say, well, they'll sort you out, they may well be a very great help um, in helping the body to function better but there'll be no help at all in addressing uh, who we are in our core, which is a, a soul or worshipping heart in relationship with the living God. And um, so there is a very great danger in seeing us just as bodies that we need the NHS to fix. Always we are souls and um, the gospel is the food for the soul that um, is only entrusted to the church. So we need to be willing to keep engaging there, which leads me on um, to this um, final section, which is to consider more about the, the vital role of church and actually um, we're sorry we're equipped by the spirit um, to help in all three ways uh, i'll explain that um church can be a place where where that that world in which we're embedded and the body and the soul the heart um are things that church can do something about in every one of those areas let me say a little bit about the world how does church help the world of a depressed person well the world of a depressed person often shrinks quite markedly um, for all the reasons that you'll be able to understand from what we were saying in part one. What church can do is surround that person with love. The kinds of things that will help that happen will be if churches do seminars like this, so that um, church becomes a, a place where actually there are quite a number of people who understand what it's like to have depression and know that um, one of the possibilities in the life of church is to be given the privilege of of connecting people who are suffering with depression in 
with the life of the church so that they don't feel the alienation and the loneliness that they would otherwise um, feel. They don't experience those things. They may still feel alienated and lonely, but they won't actually be alienated and lonely because there'll be people involved in their lives. To surround them with love, to stay involved in their life, to, to know and be known. Um, that is, um, that over time, it is safe for someone with depression to be known as someone who has depression because we don't draw back when we discover these things. In fact, if anything, we'll draw closer to them um, because we, we know that uh, God equips us to do so. God, God understands and God can help us to understand. Um, and that changes the world um, of a depressed person just to have people who, who stay there for the long haul. Um, and whatever they find out about what's going on in this person's thought world, they're not horrified. They don't withdraw. They're just there. Um, and we can help recruit help. Uh, we can, um, a church, which is not just one other person, it's a whole body of people. And there are lots of people on this call. Church can be a great place where um, uh, we don't just rely on one person to pick up all the pieces in somebody else's life. Um, we, can, we can go and ask a small group to be involved in caring for this member of their small group who's going through depression. Um, we can find other people um, at different points of the church who've maybe got a, a bit of time or they've got a lawnmower to mow the grass that's getting out of hand or there's, there's lots of kinds of ways in which people can help and all of that becomes more difficult in a pandemic but um, you can still do things especially where mental health is an issue um, and uh, church is a great place to find resources that really do change a person's world and you know just for someone to know that someone's going to turn up and mow the grass um, can itself be a little bit significant weight of someone's mind who just hasn't got the energy to get them around themselves. Um, so surrounding a person uh, with love is a really important possibility um, for us to be able to do as a, as a team, as a body, not just one, um, but as a, as a, as a big uh, group. And in addition to changing a person's world, we can value the care of the body. And, um, Sometimes um, what we can do when we're alongside people with depression is help them access uh, what you might say are natural resources, which are helpful in someone with depression. So to eat regularly, a balanced diet is really helpful for someone who's eating with depression and their motivation for eating and their motivation for preparing nice food and the energy they have to do so might be reduced. So if we can help in some way, improve their diet, that will help them care for their body. Um, to help them take exercise. Exercise is a proven benefit in depression. That's not a surprise because we're body and soul and to be using our bodies uh, is good for us, the body that God's given us. But it's very hard to do that when you lack motivation. And it may be that just um, going out for someone with, for a walk with a dog for five minutes um, or just walking to the end of the garden and back. Um, not even have to say you're doing it. Should we take a cup of tea outside and let's just walk around and look at what's there? Those kinds of things will um, be really helpful, getting people outside, a bit of fresh air, a little bit of exercise. And we're doing it because we know the body matters and exercise is important. Helping someone with time management, just put um, some little landmarks in their day um, to say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, ring you at 12 o'clock every Thursday, um, can help to give a sense of time when time can have no shape because you have depression and you wake and you sleep and you don't know quite know when and you don't know what happens in between. Um, so to have people who are, are popping little landmarks in your day can be a really helpful way to help their uh, body function in more normal cycles of eating and waking and sleeping and so on. And then we can help people engage with their GP. 
we can take them to appointments. Um, and by GP, it could be GP or the mental health team, mental health nurse and so on. GP is the um, most common point of first access for someone who's uh, first um, discovering a, a mental illness. Um, uh, it's difficult to get yourself along to an appointment when you lack all motivation and you can't see the point and, and having done so will bring you no reward. Um, so um, to have someone who will go with you or someone who will pick you up or someone who will just hold your hand and very gently um, not let you go until you've got there um, uh, can be a very uh, important way to love someone with depression. So the help that is available for their body um, in the hands of a trained professional is, is help that they can access. And to be supportive of, of their decision around whether to take medication. It's not that everybody has to take medication. They'll be offered it by a responsible GP and it's up for them to decide or to be supportive of that with them and to, to help them own that decision may be very helpful to help them take it regularly. Might be a really helpful thing to do. It's surprising how often medicines are prescribed by a GP and not taken. And if, if someone has depression and lacks motivation and the sense of achievement from having done something, it's really difficult sometimes just to remember or to remember and then take medication. So if you could arrange for someone who's got bad depression, who's just been changed to new medication, if you could arrange for someone just to pop in once a day and make sure they're taking their medication, that in itself could be a really, really precious thing to do. Um, the GP may suggest counselling. And as I've already said, there'll be areas of that person that are so important that that counselling won't address, but it may still be extremely helpful. Where depression has arisen as a result of um, a, a long sequence of very difficult things that someone has lived through, and their, their ability to respond normally has just been bruised time and time again because they've been through such difficult things. People who really know how to listen uh, well and um, to help people's um, uh, thinking cope with those kind of onslaughts um, can be extremely helpful, even though we know that they won't be able to say very much about a relationship with God, which is the most important part of somebody, they can still do something which is immensely valuable in helping them. Um, process uh, things that we won't feel very expert in doing. Um, uh, and um, world body soul care. We can practice excellent soul care. This is the distinctive thing that nobody else can do. Only a church can do this. And match to the capacity. So um, people at different stages where they walk through the valley of depression. Um, uh, as the lava is doing different things in their volcano, as they're, as they're in a cave and more or less aware of the cave entrance and so on, their capacity for receiving this kind of um, care will be variable. And so we'll have to pick that up as the illness comes and goes in them. Um, but um, here, are some, here are some headlines, um, some, some thoughts for ways in which being church, we can help care for the souls of those who are struggling with depression. Um, Caring for someone's soul um, is a tiring team privilege. Um, uh, th there are lots of benefits that might come, as I've already thought about in the area of thinking about someone's body. Um, you know, those kind of physical benefits may be really important and helpful. But um, uh, how precious, too, is the communication that happens as we involve ourselves in the life of someone who's depression, that, that we, we demonstrate that we are connected with them and they are connected with us. And that's because we're convinced they belong with us in the church. And so the church is there making links, connecting with them. And, and, and it is sometimes the case that, that um, when we're conscious that someone has a, a very serious mental health illness, we, we, we sense that this is for the professionals now and we withdraw and let the professionals sort it out. And I wanna say it may well need the help of the professionals, but don't withdraw 
find a way of coming alongside them with the professionals. I remember why I wrote visit on that previous slide. It was because um, uh, if someone is an inpatient, um, if someone is is um, has had to be um, admitted to a very strange place, a, a psychiatric ward perhaps, because their their mental illness is that bad, and they're surrounded by people who also have mental illnesses as well as the healthcare team. That can be a pretty distressing place to be. Visit them. That ward belongs to Jesus too. You know, he's Lord of everywhere. And let them know that because Christians come and say hello to them. And Christians might try and engage with the other patients or they might not. That might, might not be possible. But but um, you're not going to leave them there on their own. And and that that is um, valuing the care for their body that they're receiving there. But it's also caring for their soul. It's connecting with them, even though they're in many ways in a place of great disconnection. Um, and so a regular pattern of visiting can be immensely powerful. Don't be scared by the mental um, uh, health facilities, by the psychiatric ward. Um, or if we are scared, let's um, ask for God's strength to cross over that fear for the sake of connecting with that person. And it doesn't mean that we all have to do it, but some of us may be able to. Um, so that sense of staying engaged with someone because they belong to us and with us rather than handing them over. Um, for specialist care, however bad it gets, you, you can visit locked wards um, if you do it in the proper way. And it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, in other words, we're going to go on loving them and we're going to go on finding ways of showing them that uh, we love them. Now, what does that mean in a little bit more detail? I can't remember how many numbers there are, but we're nearly at the end now. And then there'll be time for questions. And um, firstly, we need to identify a team of caregivers. Um, it, is, it can be really tiring when depression goes on for a very long time. It, it's, the, it's not the kind of thing that goes away in 48 hours. Um, it, it does sometimes take months and years. And if there are only one or two people involved, it is certain that they are going to get weary and they may get worn out and they may get depression. Uh, we need to keep looking for how the team is doing and asking ourselves whether we need to expand the circle, widen the circle, bring other people in. And this is, is the kind of love of one another, practical love for one another, that people notice. And, and the non-Christians looking in on the way that um, uh, we care for each other say, gosh, you're really loved in that place. What is that? And that's exactly what John 15 said would happen, that people will see that we, we follow the great lover of people, the great carer for people by the love we show to one another in all kinds of ways, including uh, the care that we surround someone with in, in moments of mental illness. That team of caregivers need to be willing to take the initiative regularly. Remember, one of the features of depression is that it's very difficult to take the initiative and do things. So that care needs to be people who are willing to take the initiative in moving towards somebody regularly, consistently, not all the time, because that will become much more wearing much more quickly, but with a regularity and a consistency, a faithfulness, that they're exhibiting something of God's faithful character towards us in that they are there doing what they said day by day or week by week. It might mean daily phone calls that a team of people could do it. Someone on a Monday, someone on a Tuesday, someone on a Wednesday. It's only one call, one little reminder in the phone. It only needs to take five minutes, um, especially if everybody says, look, um, we're going to ring you just for a five minute chat, just to make sure you're OK and to check in and to have, have and, and someone will perhaps read one Bible verse once a week. Um, uh, if that's where they're at in terms of capacity, they may not be. So it needs to be matched to their capacity. But that kind of thing. Um, it doesn't matter how you think, just someone will be on the phone and it doesn't have to take too long. I'll just, I'll just hello, uh, we love you, we're praying for you. Is there anything I can pray about for you right now? Um, uh, meals can be very helpful, dropping in when that's allowed, and it is allowed already in cases of, uh, of mental illness. Um, 
the sharing of life. Um, it can feel like a very much bigger burden to try and share your life with someone who's depressed um, because you don't get back what you normally enjoy getting back from someone else who you're sharing your life with. Um, but it may be that um, strengthened by God's spirit of self-sacrifice and, um, and selfless love, um, that we might be able to seek his help to share our life in the same kind of way with someone for whom we're getting less back. And although we may get less back immediately, um, there will be ways in which God finds to um, reward and sustain us and encourage us that that investment is uh, really worthwhile. Having someone who's depressed to stay can be immensely valuable. I remember uh, someone, a friend of ours, who um, uh, acknowledged to me, and I was asking her some of the, the questions I was suggesting earlier. She was depressed. She was acknowledging she was finding things very, very hard. And she revealed, as we discussed things, that um, she actually had a plan to take her life in a few days' time. Um, and knew how he was going to do it and had begun um, supplying herself with what she would need to do it. Um, and um, uh, I said, well, you need to tell me who you're going to stay with over this weekend. Um, and I thought I knew in this case, I, I knew how I thought I knew who she would say. And we set it up and she went and lived with them for this weekend. She didn't in the end want to commit suicide. It felt that, that was the only thing she had left. And just a simple ability to go and stay with in someone's house when things were so hard was exactly what she needed. And I encouraged her on the basis that when Jesus was um, going through the most difficult time of his life facing death, he took people with him. He wouldn't, he didn't let himself be alone, even though they were rubbish friends, he took people with him. Well, if Jesus needs people with him in the garden of Gethsemane, then you need to get, be willing to go and stay with people in this great trial. And she did. And, and she's still with us. Um, that team of people that you choose, um, who, are, who are a team of caregivers, they're taking the initiative regularly to move towards them in all these kinds of ways, are being themselves supported in this ministry. Um, and they know where they're being supported. So um, um, where someone um, is living close to someone with depression, their small group should know that and be praying for them and encouraging them in that and spotting if things are getting too much and, and working out how they can get some respite. It doesn't mean that they all need to be involved in caring necessarily, but they need to recognise that there is there will be a strain on those who are caring. And, and God equips us for the care he wants us to show. He doesn't ask us to do the impossible. He doesn't ask us all to burn out as we look after one another who are looking after each other. He equips us for the care he wants us to show. And it's small moments of thoughtfulness that communicate that kind of love and care that makes all the difference. This team of people who are being cared for and are willing to take the initiative are, are willing to pray for and sometimes pray with the person if their capacity is up to a prayer with them, very short prayer, just one sentence. The skill of one sentence prayers is so helpful um, to develop in people who are um, experiencing depression. Um, you can ask what to pray for, and if they can't think of anything, you'll pray for them anyway. Um, you, you're going to keep it short. It, it's gonna, you're going to be compassionate. You're not you're not praying uh, as if they're going to get better in 48 hours time. You're praying for what they need to endure in this season of their life, perhaps. And um, you're remembering for them answers to prayer. So if you've prayed, for example, that someone will be able to get out of bed the next day, and if they do manage to get out of bed the next day, they may not remember that they prayed for because their memory's not working very well. But you can remember and say, I'm so glad you got out of bed. That's great. We prayed for that. Do you remember? Oh, that's wonderful. And um, that kind of thing can be part of helping someone feel more connected with God than they were able to remember on their own. Um, and that team of people needs to have a, a kind of confidence, by which I mean... Um, that 
the person themselves is finding it very difficult to hold on to God, but the carers are not finding it difficult to remember um, that God is holding on to this person. Now, we all have moments when we're asking questions like that. I don't mean that we some, somehow need a sort of miraculously undented faith. Um, I just mean that um, it's okay for that team of people. In fact, it's very helpful for that team of people to be able to hold on to those convictions that a person with depression is struggling to hold for themselves and um, uh, that they that they are able to keep moving towards them, to keep showing the initiative um, and have their own confidence in the Lord um, is a... Is a, is a they're not waving it in front of them saying, why can't you, you be like me? They're just, they're just saying that um, it, doesn't, it doesn't rock me that you're going through a very hard time. Um, I know God is caring for you. And um, sometimes the, the person who's suffering can, can, as it were, borrow that conviction and feel a little bit more certain than it might be true if they can see someone else believing it um, with that kind of gentle, loving confidence. Uh, you may be able to share scripture with the person. Um, uh, you might choose a very familiar bit of scripture. You might just say um, the first line of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are shepherding John today. Um, you might choose a surprising part of scripture that will, you know, perhaps interest them a little bit more, again, if their capacity is up to it. Maybe something that you were reading that morning. You just think, I was reading this this morning. I found it so encouraging. I thought I would um, just read you a sentence. Um, hear me, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you, exactly when we're poor and needy, you hear us and answer us. Um, doesn't have to be long, doesn't have to be um, complicated, but it's just drawing a little thread of connection that would otherwise be lost. Uh, you might use some of the laments in scripture. I've actually pointed you to Psalm 42 and Psalm 88. Um, Bits of scripture that convince us that God is not remote from us. God does not find it difficult to understand that God knows and indeed that Jesus shares this. So here, for example, is another one. Psalm 102. My days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. In my distress, I groan aloud and I'm reduced to skin and bones. I'm like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I become like a bird alone on a roof. Loneliness, low mood, depression. It's there in the Psalms. It's known in Scripture. And it may be um, that you, you read one of those sentences and say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you know exactly how John feels today. They may or may not feel any better because you said that. But there's a point of connection which you are making for them, um, which uh, um, they can, um, even if they don't, they don't feel that it's true, they can see that you feel it's true. And that can be a, a real help. Um, so uh, you may share scripture, um, familiar or surprising, the laments are particularly mentioned. Uh, again, keep, keep it short, um, make it obvious, don't, don't have, them, have them sort of trail down three difficult questions to get to the answer, make it very straightforward and undemanding. Um, try and make it personal, share something of you in it and connect it with them, don't just have sort of truth that's up here. Um, uh, make it show the impact that it has on your life and on their life that it's a, a promise that applies directly to them now and be gentle and gracious as you do so don't expect very much from them um and just um keep keep those connections going because the reality is that christ does connect with all of our struggles um and scripture will make those connections for us um uh, uh that um 
whatever the particular emphasis of the depression that I'm feeling, and there are all kinds of places where scripture makes those connections. If I'm feeling that kind of guilt that I'm not a proper Christian, scripture assures us that it is Christ who deals with our guilt and that we are, we are washed clean um, with our shame. Christ cleanses us. He takes it away. Um, uh, and that um, it, is, it is to those who are most despairing that Christ is able to speak hope. Now, again, we can give the impression that if we find the right verse, suddenly someone's experience will turn around, not at all. But we can at least demonstrate that someone's experience is addressed in Scripture with something in the end will bear fruit of a, of a, of a, of a faith and a hope that will not be disappointed. We're nearly at the end. Um, sixth thing to think about in practical soul care, um, include them in church life as much as possible. Now, that's not more than possible, and it may be that very little or nothing is possible. But it might be that a little bit of involvement is possible. And if our conviction is that they belong in church, it might be easier for us to remember to explore these possibilities than just to assume that because they've got depression, they can't. Um, it might be that they can come to church on a Sunday or occasionally on a Sunday or for part of the service. Or if they never have to talk to anybody, maybe they could arrive late and leave early. Um, I mean, online, that might be a great deal easier for them to join in church. So for as long as church is streaming, um, um, can someone go and open their laptop for them? Um, uh, can they get along to small group? Or if they can't get along to small group, can they be included in their small group's WhatsApp? Um, or can they, could they send something? Or could someone type the message for them in their small group's WhatsApp group? How could they participate in some way with what's going on in the life of church so that they don't feel any more excluded or any more separate than they really need to? Um, if there are special events um, going on, um, if there's a church weekend away, um, do they have to be excluded for all of it or is there some way they could join in um uh, they weren't they weren't in the um in the meeting where this was agreed has someone remembered to send them the zoom link so that if they are free they could join in and if they don't want to at least they know that it was possible for them um practical ways to try and include people in church life as much as possible and to consider with them what they can do and um, that is one of the things that 1 Corinthians 12 says is that weak people belong in the church to be cared for. Another thing it says that every Christian is given something to build up the life of the church. And for some Christians, their contribution is simply to receive the love and care of other people. Um, that's why God puts people um, in the church who have prolonged, um, who have irreversibly serious problems like dementia. When you, 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 We feel we've lost the person already. But they still belong in the church because they, God, God intends them to stay there to receive our love and care, that they be honoured and valued as a human being, still made in his image with a hope of restoration, the resurrection that we're so looking forward to at Easter again. But um, if someone can do a little more than that, um, then it may be that, that that's, that's 7a, to be cared for. They may be able to pray. They may be able to say a very short prayer. I was very struck by a depressed friend who I was ringing up sort of once a week after his therapy because he was found, found um, his psychotherapy very discouraging. And I was wanting to I'd help him identify something that was a good reason to keep going in it. Um, and at the end of those conversations, he'd usually say, um, uh, how can I pray for you? And I might that, that was a surprise that he had the that he and it, it would have been it was wonderful at that moment. I could give him something to pray for that he could pray for and he could know that he was serving me. Um, so the assumption that people can't do anything, it may not be very helpful. Um, could they call someone else? Maybe not, but maybe they could. Maybe they could know that in their depression, they can begin to serve somebody else by 
having a quick phone call for them and maybe it's the only thing they do that morning because they feel tired at the end of it but a very quick phone call to someone just to let you know i'm here and i care about you could be a kind of minimal but significant contribution that would help them feel that they belong in the body serving others often does that for us and and and, and if it's just turning up or something or just doing something small like that they can be encouraged that when they give out of the little that they have um jesus loves that kind of staggering generosity like he does with a widow's mind. We're nearly there. This is the last slide of points. I'm sorry it's gone on. Um, here's, a, here's a good overall picture for what we're trying to aim to do as we walk with people who are in depression. We, we aim to be no more than one or two steps ahead of them. So um, we're close enough to be in touch. We know what's going on in their life. We haven't sort of sprinted off and left them lonely again while we go off and get on with our exciting lives. We're, we're with them. We're close to them. They know that. They can see it. They can feel it. They can hear it. They can touch it. Um, but we're, it's okay to be a step or two ahead of them so that um, you know, we, we don't have to um, seem like uh, we are experiencing exactly the same things that they are. They, as, I, as I said, they, in some sense, they, they can borrow our faith and our hope. They don't have it themselves. They can see it in us and that can, that can encourage them. Um, uh, you're, begin, you're, you're showing them what it might look like um, as they begin to get better. And you don't go racing ahead so the gap widens. You just stay one or two steps ahead. It's a helpful picture to have. Uh, I'm close to them. I'm with them. Um, but I'm just going to say a one-sentence prayer. And before long, perhaps they'll be able to do the same. Um, and the final thing to say is that in caring for people with depression, this is something you're going to have to go on repeating over and over again. And so whatever plans you make need to be sustainable um, because uh, you may need to keep going with them endlessly. But as you do, as you keep going on and on, rather than getting stuck in a rut and, and feeling like you are, keep looking for signs of hope. And they might be that you're looking for those signs of hope only in the promises of God. But it might be that you're looking for signs of hope in the little things that they've begun to be able to do that six months ago they weren't doing. Um, but they've had, actually, they now had breakfast every day for a week. And um, that in, in what feels like an unsustainable internal thing, if you can track little things like that, you'll be um, feeding your own hope and you'll be feeding their hope too in what can be a very long haul. The final thing to say to us, um, is a great word of wisdom. I should warn you, this is in Chris Cipollone's book, that it's likely there'll be times when your offers of help will not be wanted or appreciated. You'll probably do or say the wrong thing. Please rest in God's grace and keep loving that person, whoever they may be. Now, um, if, if you are still there, then you've done an amazing job because I have been going through a very long list and saying a very great deal. And I'm sorry that it's taken um, a little longer than I planned. We've got some time for questions. And uh, uh, I think if I stop sharing the screen, I can um, and close that down. Uh, I can see the questions. Tom, you feel free to uh, interrupt at this or any point and say we need to we need to stop. But um, I guess we can say that we understand if people need to drop away as we as we get to 930. But please do um, have a go at some of these questions. That'll be wonderful. Great. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you've already you've already done brilliantly to stay this long. I, I will just answer a few, and uh, but Tom, we won't go on forever. Um, uh, any advice for us if we live with a person with depression and therefore are affected by it almost constantly? How do we help and care without becoming submerged ourselves? Um, I think you're absolutely right to identify the the reality that um, it is 
It is hard work. It is a burden to care for people who are unwell in any way for a long period of time. It's not just true with depression. Um, uh, depression is um, a particular kind of burden and can be particularly wearing in certain ways on us. Uh, it, it, it may not tire our bodies out physically, like caring for someone that, that, that can't move themselves might, but it may well tire our souls out. And I think there are two things to say. One is that um, it is a lovely way to reflect Christ, to be willing to carry the burden of caring for another person. So in Galatians 6, we're told to carry each other's burdens, and this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. But um, uh, if we're in a church... Uh, there needs to be many people with you and around you who are helping you with this burden. So there are others who are having this privilege from Jesus of sharing that burden and carrying it with you. And if you involve enough people, then for, for any one person, it doesn't feel like a huge load. Um, uh, and I think, I think a, a part of that for someone who is living with someone with depression um, will be that in communi communicating also with a person who's experiencing depression, um, that you... you um, you honour the God who invented the idea of Sabbath and rest, and you agree together that the carer needs rest too. And church can be a great way um, where the person who's in the front line most of the time can know that church will give them a rest. Now, there are other kinds of rest, respite care and other help that may be available from other places, but church can be a great place for that. And rest doesn't have to be going on holiday for a week, though it might be. Rest could be someone's going to come around and have a cup of tea with you. Um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, and pray with you and encourage you and just notice if things are getting harder, in which case we'll do a little bit more. But that kind of thought of um, for, for, a, for a few minutes, I'm not going to be on my own trying to solve these problems. There's going to be someone with me. That can be some kind of a cycle of, of rest. Um, what are your views on the relative merits of medical treatment, secular counselling, biblical counselling? Yes, I've tried to explain that... Um, uh, Medical counselling can be invaluably helpful if we have access to it. And in the NHS in this country, we do have access to it and we can be so thankful for it. Um, it doesn't replace, um, and secular counselling also can be very helpful. I tried to indicate something about um, how that, how that um, uh, can help um, our brains recover um, a, a much more normal function. Um, but the thing that neither of those things can do is preach the gospel to us and remind us of the faithful love of God and embody the love of God around us. I mean, um, God does provide these other means of help, but they won't come with God's name on and they won't come um, with uh, uh, with the prayers of his people. Um, Christians have to get alongside to do those things. Christians have to make the connections with God's word. Christians have to be the ones who pray. Christians have to be the ones who keep explaining that God is a God who is not remote from us in these times. He is, he is as close to us as he has ever been when we are overwhelmed with these kinds of sorrows. Um, only we can do that, and we must do that if we if we uh, want to love each other and um, uh, be serious about uh, the privilege that it is really to live in a in a body like that. I've answered the question about youth. I've answered the question about testing. Um, do I need to refresh this page? I'll just check in case. No, I'm um, going to remove them when you answer them. But maybe I haven't done all of them. Okay. Oh, I can see it says answered on them. Yes, brilliant. Oh, here's one. Why is it that I'm a Christian and yet suffer so deeply from acute and chronic existential angst, living in a constant state of incongruence about living hope in Christ? That's a very poignant question, and it may be a description of a depression. It may be something quite different. Um, I couldn't possibly begin to say that I know why 
what is going on in your life. Um, but I hope you can ask that question somewhere in your church family and there'll be someone who's willing to begin exploring um, what might be going on in your life. And it may be that help can come that way and can help you disentangle that existential angst that is so painful that you're describing. Um, it may be that um, uh, it doesn't start to get better very quickly, but at least you have someone who knows and understands as it's walking with you in it and you can see the love of Jesus in them. There, there are lots of possibilities for you, which I can't disentangle, but church is a great place to begin that process. Um, and uh, God is... Um, God is supernaturally powerful to equip us, to help each other, um, and uh, has provided churches his front line for that kind of help. Now, it's quite common for churches to say, actually, um, we're out of resources. We don't have wisdom at this point, in which case church can help you find resources elsewhere. But church is a great place to bring those questions. And I hope there's someone in the church family you can put that question to, even tonight. Um, who could you email? Who could you message it to someone and let them know that that was your question? And that'd be a brave thing to do, but it might be the beginning of, of, of help. And if people already know that, um, then that's, uh, that's a, it's, it's great that that journey has already begun. Um, God is in that. God is with you. Um, and uh, he uh, will go on keeping his promises to you. And I hope that your experience of being in a church will help that become um, a, a more and more convincing truth. Uh, let me do one more, Shalaton. Are there certain personalities that are more prone to depression? Is there anything we can do corporately to normalise their feelings and therefore make depression less of a challenge for them? Um, there, are, there are multiple identified causes for depression. Um, uh, and those are helpful in terms of working out what are some possible causes for depression in the population. Um, but it doesn't necessarily help as to know in an individual, because you only know the shape of an individual's depression by listening to them, getting to know them and understanding how it's worked in their life. Um, and it might be that it's something that has been passed down in their family. It might be um, that it's um, that it's connected with other features of their personality. Um, uh, but those connections will look a little bit different in every single human being. Um, running seminars like this is a brilliant way to normalize their feelings and normalize means that they're allowed to feel like they still belong with us it doesn't mean like oh this is good as it's going to get this is you know this is this is normal until jesus comes back normalizing means you you belong this is okay you're not out of the range of human understanding and certainly you're not out of the range of god's understanding so i hope seminars like this um can help with that that process of of um helping people understand that um no matter how bad their depression gets, they still absolutely belong here in God's church with God's people. Um, Andrew, thank you so much. Um, you've given us so much to uh, think about, to reflect on. Um, lots that is uh, gives us hope in the face of these things uh, as you point us to Jesus. Um, really grateful for that. Um, just it's just worth thinking as we as we come to an end in terms of uh, where to point one another with these things. It's been really helpful that you've, you've shown us um, how we can all be walking alongside one another in all of these situations. So let, let's keep encouraging each other to do that in, in, in our church families. Um, and I guess people may be thinking, what do I do? Um, you know, what, what else do I do? And, and um, I'll let Alistair answer for St Luke's as well in a moment. Um, I guess um, 
and in St John's we, we'd encourage each other to, to, to walk with each other in, in everyday ways to, um, uh, to, to use our small groups where appropriate and absolutely to approach those of us on the staff team, me, Corin as women's minister um, and David as family's minister in particular. Um, if you if you if you do have concerns you want to, to talk um, at greater depth about um, and we're always happy to do that. Um, uh, Alistair do you want to say just anything from your angle? Um, all of the above as well I echo exactly what you said you know lots of us have um, spare time hopefully uh, to walk with each other there are groups uh, already running in church which can be vehicles for expressing those sorts of solidarity with people so yeah more of the same that you've just mentioned thank you and i feel like this is this is sort of one point along the way in talking about this and let, let's keep talking and let's keep thinking about this and, and making sure that we are, are aware of this um and uh yeah corin would you like to uh, lead us in prayer as as we as we finish that would be great yeah yeah Let, let's pray the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you draw close to us in our darkness and sorrow, that you, regardless of our feelings, you are not a God who is far off. Thank you. Your word assures us that you are with us uh, in the depths and that you understand because the Lord Jesus was sorrowful to the point of death. And Lord, for any here tonight who are particularly struggling, we pray that you would assure them afresh of your love and that you would help us as the body of Christ to show them that they belong. And for all of us, Lord, help us to take to heart and to remember what we have learned. Help us to become more the, the caring body of Christ that you intend us and have planned for us to be, not just rejoicing with those who rejoice, but also weeping with those who weep and walking with those who are going through darkness. But as we do, sharing the sure hope that we share in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.